Hey, Osiris listeners. We want to tell you about our friends at Sunset Lake CBD who support this show. Sunset Lake CBD is a Vermont hemp farm crafting affordable CBD products designed to help with sleep and stress without breaking the bank. If you haven't tried CBD before, take it from me, it's a game changer. I use Sunset Lake's tincture every night before I go to bed, helping me get solid, restful sleep. And their gummies are great for daytime. Check out their new Good Vibes gummies, which have just a bit of hemp-derived THC to help you relax and unwind. Sunset Lake CBD crafts products with hemp grown on their family farm and ships them directly to customers. They have tinctures, salves, edibles, coffee, smokables, and even pet products. By the way, their CBD chocolate fudge is awesome. Check them out today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use coupon code TIME for 20% off all products. Sunset Lake CBD, farmer-owned, Vermont-grown. Osiris. Hey, this is Oteal. If you're liking what you're hearing, head on over to patreon.com forward slash comes a time pod and get your bus pass for an extra episode every week. Welcome back to another episode of Comes a Time. That's Oteal. And that is Mike. We record these intros after uh, the episode. So we are uh, so thrilled to be bringing you this episode with Dr. Lori Santos. She is a professor at Yale University and the host of the Happiness Lab podcast. And her course on the science of happiness uh, is the most signed up for the most attended course at, uh, in the history of Yale university. So, uh, that says a lot about that class and her, yeah, she said a quarter of the whole school <laughs> signed up for it. <laughs> That's success right there. Huh? Well, it I just guess. shows you, I mean, all these cream of the crop, we, we think that all, you know, these people should be the happiest one. Like, Oh, I already got that. You know, it's like, nope. <laughs> hey, man, Oteal, I grew up around Yale, and I'll tell you what, there have been times where I'd be out at the bars when I was younger, and I didn't go to Yale. Let's just get that out of the way right away. Uh, <laughs> and the people who were getting the most hammered and getting thrown out and getting into fights, you know, I'd talk to a bouncer or whatever, and then they're like, these Yale kids just come in so wound up, and then they end up just blowing off all their steam. in the bar. So it's like, you know, the pressure of... We all have the pressure, whatever the pressure may be. And uh, theirs comes from, you know, God knows what. But uh, man, what an unbelievable conversation. She's in season two of her podcast, which I'm immediately going to dive right into. Um, Me too. But this was like an incredibly, you know, to I'm very happy that education is uh, acknowledging that like mental health and taking care of yourself up here and in here and every, you know, has to be a part of the equation for success these days. Yeah, it's been, uh, everything has just been so clinical and it doesn't address these things that we need. Like the thing that kept coming up over and over again was connection. You know, we live in this virtual and especially during the pandemic, like hyper disconnected time, but yeah. pretty, but a disconnected age in general, you know, and then connection seems to be the, the thing that, you know, can bring us back to our natural equilibrium and yeah. get retuned to, you know, nature and our inner and outer peace, you know. In listening to her, did you think about 
in the back of your mind? Were you thinking about all the conversations that we've already had on this podcast and the community that we've are a part of? And it seems like there's just, we're that frequency that we're tuned to this, this conversation has been being had for the past year now with us. And, and it's, it made me think a lot about the scene that we're a part of. You know what I like about it? I feel like it's almost like, um, the way a diamond, like the light prisms through all these different facets. So it's almost like we're having the same converse. It ends up being the same conversation over and over again, because it's about the light coming through the prism, but we're just turning the prism. So you're (laughs) seeing a different facet. So it's a musician or it's an astrophysicist or it's a psychologist or it's a comedian or it's a Dr. Pollock, but it always gets back to the, whether it's a veterinarian or an astrophysicist, we, <laughs> totally. we end up coming back to those, these same themes, which are so clearly important, Yeah, <laughs> you know, or else I wouldn't keep coming back to it. No, absolutely. And it's so true. And it's so amazing because she's talking and it's just like, man, I could have listened to her for hours and hours. like, I, I almost want to go take the SATs again and see if I can go to Yale just to take that class. And her class is available on Coursera, which is pretty great for free for free, free. which Yale is not. So, uh, (laughs) 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 but, uh, thank you to Dr. Lori Santos. She said it to us and, uh, boy, it was really incredible and, and thank her for, uh, you know, so much for her time. And we'd also like to thank our sponsor, uh, Garcia handpicked, and you can go to GarciaHandpick.com to find in your area uh, some of the highest quality uh, cannabis products and some of the most amazing packaging and Jerry's beautiful face and his flowing hair and his ha- imperfect hand is all over all of the products and all of the packaging. And uh, we're happy to have them on board with us. So check out everything at Garcia Handpicked. Yeah, they helped me. Uh, they helped me with my happiness. Here, you know, some of my self care. Sometimes, <laughs> yeah. you know, when things are just going bananas, mm-hmm. you just need to chill out, simmer down. Yeah. So, uh, I help out, uh, help your happiness quotient out. If that's one of the ways, and that if you not, like to do it, it's okay. More for us. Thank you guys for listening. We're on Osiris. As always, you can check out all the amazing podcasts at OsirisPod.com and join us on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash comes a time pod. Get your bus pass. O'Teal and I are working on some pretty exciting stuff for you guys in the upcoming months. And uh, we want you to be a part of all of them. So uh, keep your ear to the ground. Take care of your own happiness. Be your own priority. Listen to Lori, listen to her podcast, take care of each other. Now I sound like, what was that, Springer at the end of his show? Take care of yourself and each other. I think that's how he ended every show. Yeah. Oh, well, good for him. I didn't think he did that. Well, after he had people fight on stage and throw chairs (laughs) at each other and shit. Not the father. Take care of yourself and each other. We we love you guys. Thanks for listening. Peace. Thank you so much for uh, joining us, Lori. It is uh, it's a pleasure to meet you, and uh, we are uh, no better time to talk about the science of happiness. <laughs> I think we need this more than uh, my God. I feel like I'm, I'm I need to 
send you my insurance info after this because uh, <laughs> happy to receive is... it. Yeah, no, no, it's happy for better or for worse. Happiness science has become big business during, you know, the 18 months of a global pandemic. It's something we all need. And, and it wasn't like something that we didn't need before that. Right. When I first started teaching about the science of class you know, like happiness, no one had ever heard of COVID-19. It was like back in 2018. It feels prescient to have been talking about it back then. But yeah. Well, it seems too like uh, a lot of people, you know, we're all kind of on this like re-entry now, right? And it's, I feel like I'm running into quite a bit of uh, everyone being alone and being isolated or, you know, maybe reinforcing their silo or their bubble. Now re-entering society is not very easy for some. And I feel like it's those uh, apprehensions and conversations that you kind of knew were going to happen or happening. And we're all trying to figure out, like, how do we how do we be who we are now and how not who we were? Now we need some strategies. Right. You know, I give I give all these talks at businesses and they they tend to say that you know, the their employees are like half and half. Right. Like half are like, I want to come back immediately. You know, why are we doing this so slowly? Like, let's just get back in there. And there's another half that's like. I haven't worn adult shoes in 18 months, like kind of like being at my house and not seeing anyone. And so every no matter what you think, you're kind of going through this uncomfortable period of change and change is always a little bit uncomfortable. But, you know, the good news is that there are like these evidence based strategies you can use to kind of navigate this time and other times, too, that are tough. Do you feel like the fundamentals are the same for your strategies? Because like when we think about, okay, one of the things that I feel and I think I notice is that people are more polarized since the pandemic after going to our corners and we kind of dug our heels in and um so but are the strategies the same like regardless of the differing circumstances are the fundamentals the yeah, same? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the biggest ones is that, you know, this is a time when we need a little bit of self-compassion, right? I should also note that all of these strategies sound like cheesy, like very hippy-dippy, you know, like self-compassion, it sounds like, you know, like it's not like, <laughs> you know, yeah, like, yeah, like, you know, I'm preaching to the choir here in this particular podcast, but. Yeah, but, you can but, let it out yeah, here. Yeah, you know, like, but but self-compassion, you know, sounds all flowery, but but it's, it's, it's hard, right? Like, this is like a hard strategy. It's like, it's the act of being, you know, mindful about how you're feeling without judgment, right? You know, because we can sometimes have judgments about ourselves, you know, like I'm getting asked to go out and do talks and I'm kind of like, I don't want to do that. But I'm like, wait, what does that mean for my identity as a professor? I'm supposed to want to get out there. Like, I feel kind of like a loser that I don't really want to do that, right? So that's one thing is this kind of mindful noticing with this sort of non-judgment. But then another reason self-compassion is particularly powerful for the thing that you were mentioning, which is this idea of feeling so polarized is it's a way to kind of connect with your common humanity. You're like, if I'm feeling scared, if I'm feeling anxious, that's what we're all going through right now. That's normative. That's what we're supposed to be going through. And so that's another way that I think self-compassion can be really powerful right now is you realize like, wait a minute, even though we might have different reactions, we're all in this together. We're all facing change. We're all facing uncertainty. None of us know what's going on. You know, and that kind of links us despite the fact that we might feel really different from one another. When you began to research it, now you said 2018, 2018, very, and by the way, congratulations on being the most uh, taken course at Yale University. Thank you. 
it's quite a quite an honor. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of courses at Yale. I'm sure that were, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, th- that that list was probably varied and long. But when you started to to take a look at this, was it something that you have you always been like fascinated by the human condition, or was this something? Did you need to kind of like do this for yourself, or? Yeah, it all us all started uh, kind of when I took on a new role on Yale's campus. So I've always been a psychologist. I've been studying psychology for a long time and always fascinated by the mistakes that we make, why our mind makes these mistakes, what can we do about it. Um, but I really got interested in happiness when I took on this new role as a head of college on campus. So, you know, Yale's one of these weird schools like Hogwarts, you know, and Harry Potter, where there's like colleges within a college. There's like the Gryffindor and Slytherin. And so I'm head of Silliman College, which means I like live on campus with the students. Like I, I my, my house is like in their quad. I eat in the dining hall with them. I kind of hang out with them. You know, and when I signed on to do this, I was thinking that college was going to feel like what it felt like when I went to college in the late 90s, right? Like fun and like we'd have all these like cool events and I'd be part of this community. I wasn't expecting to see the mental health crisis that we have on campuses right now. You know, so many students just reporting that they're feeling stressed and anxious. You know, students are having panic attacks. I'm I'm experiencing students who are suicidal, right? And at first I was like, you know, what is it about Yale? You know, maybe Yale's this weird Ivy League school that like is, you know, extra pressure or something. But it turns out this is national, right? Like this is state schools, community colleges, like, and the stats are scary, right? Right now, nationally, one in like one in four students is reporting feeling so depressed it's difficult to function. More than 60 percent of students wow. report feeling overwhelmingly anxious. Um, more than one in 10 has seriously considered suicide in the last year, right? You know, so if I look out wow. at 10 kids, one of them might be seriously considering suicide. And these are like, I mean, this is different than when I was in college, I think. And, you know, and so I just realized, you know, I'm like a mom to these kids in my college, right? I'm like this sort of benevolent aunt. And I was like, we're not meeting our educational mission if we don't address this crisis. Like all these Yale kids aren't learning computer science and Chaucer and whatever else we think we're teaching them. Like they're too depressed and anxious to really kind of take this info in. And so it started as an attempt to figure out like, okay, what can my field teach these students about how they can overcome this crisis? But, you know, you asked if this was about me too. And I think, you know, part of it really was like, I was seeing them be depressed and anxious and stressed. I was watching them kind of fast forward their life. You know, you'd ask like, Hey, how's it going? They'd be like, Oh, if I could just get to Friday, you know, if I could just get to spring break. And I was Mm -hmm. like, I didn't want to admit it, but I saw a little bit of myself in them too, right? Like, you know, I I was stressed out and, you know, not doing the right things. And so even though the class was for the students, I realized, you know, I've, I'm going to have to practice what I preach if I'm telling them this stuff, right? Like maybe I can get some good strategies too. So yeah, that's where it started was just like trying to address this crisis that I think we're all facing right now. I was thinking about that earlier where it's like, or even just as, what you just revealed about the Yale students, like these are like people that are very well off. Um, you know, we would say at the top of society. Now you look at the crisis that the rest of the country is going through. I mean, you know, tent cities are blowing yeah. up. Opioid deaths damn near hit a 30%. It was like 29% increase. You know, the eviction moratoriums are about to end. So the tent cities are going to explode even more, you know, um, all kinds of things. People with the, and with our regular old health care crisis. I mean, you know, like there's a lot of the country is not like re-entering. They're, t- they're 
crashing and burning. Like, you know, and it's like, how do we deal? Is are, is there something they can use in here too? You yeah. know, I mean, it's Well, the good, the good news is like, you know, I think one of the misconceptions we have, and I think this gets to kind of one of the reasons that Yale students are so unhappy, and many of us are so unhappy, is like, we think happiness is about our circumstances, right? You know, for our, mm. our Yale students, that plays out in a certain way. Like they probably, you know, when they apply here, like getting into Yale is like the coolest thing that could ever happen to them, right? And then they find out they get it and it's like, okay, you know, on to the next yeah. next accolade, you know, next, next thing, right? The, you know, they put these dreams in this place that like, if I get through, you know, if I get that thing, I'm just going to be happy forever, right? We have this idea of happily ever after. But like the science shows it just doesn't work that way, right? Our circumstances don't matter for our happiness as much as we think. Like if you're in dire circumstances, you know, if you're in tent city, if you can't put a roof over your head, that's one thing. But, you know, many of us who aren't in that position, we forget that like, it's just going to be okay. Like these things we're going for aren't going to give us the happiness we think. And so I think that's one thing to recognize is like, yes, if you're in dire circumstances, you need to change these things around. But what really counts as dire circumstances is not what we think. And if you look to people who are experiencing those dire circumstances, you know, sometimes they're happier than the, you know, the affluent Yale kid who's got everything going for them, right? You know, um, sometimes they have social connection, they have gratitude for what they've gone through, you know, they have a reference point that they're moving up rather than down, you know, and so we kind of forget that circumstances aren't the key to things. And I think that's important to start with because it means that like there are strategies you can use to be happier no matter what your circumstances. And I think that's good because, you know, we got to figure out all these problems that we just listed, right? Like we got to figure out how to make society better. But, you know, I don't think we can do that, you know, if 40% of us are feeling too depressed to function most days, right? Like, you know, the thing I get most scared about about my Yale kids is like, these are the folks that are supposed to be the leaders. Yeah. You know, they're going to be like the presidents and the activists and the people that are fixing climate change, right? But like, they're not going to do that if their mental health is the way it is right now. And so, you know, part part of me was like, I got to I got to fix this population because they're not going to be able to do all the stuff we need this generation to do to fix stuff <laughs> unless they're like in a good mental health place. So we can kind of mm-hmm. come off sometimes that focusing on our happiness is selfish, but I actually think in some ways it's the most unselfish act, right? Because it gives us the bandwidth to do more for others down the line. You know, you brought up something very interesting. And I think that it's like maybe the having an actual working definition of what happiness is, is extremely important. Because, you know, when I was in college, I worked full time during the day and I went to class at night. I lived off campus the whole time. I paid for it all myself. And I would look at other people And I would go, how are they doing it so easily? Like, how is it that college is so easy for them? It may not have been. It was just my interpretation, me putting, you know, you know, my lens was kind of telling me that I have it way hard. They don't. For all I know, where my parents were like two hands off, theirs may have been two hands on. So it's that whole mm-hmm. kind of like we're all working in our silos, but at the same time, it's like having your your own definition of it's like success versus fame. Mm-hmm. Like, are you successful or are you famous? Or So it's I, I imagine that, you know, kind of taking a step back instead of digging deeper and going, OK, first of all, what is happiness? 
Yeah. And I think, you know, we all succumb to the very thing that you talk about. One of the studies I talk about in my class is a study where you you ask people to predict like how things are going for other people and you have them say like how things are going for yourself so you say like hey how Mm. many good things happened to you in college this week you know how many good grades did you get how often did you get to go to a cool party how often did you you know have like you know some some cute boy or girl you know ask you out or something like that so you say for yourself and then you also predict other people like how how often did you know those other people you're looking at how often did they go to a party you know get a good grade or whatever and then you do that for negative events how often did you feel homesick you know how often did you get a worse grade than you thought and and you predict for other people and what you find is like our predictions are completely off for the good stuff, we're like, oh, you know, 40% of people, you know, like got a great grade, but then it really is like only 20% or like, you know, and and, and it's even worse for the bad stuff. So we mm. constantly predict that, oh, nobody's feeling homesick, but everybody's feeling homesick. Nobody's getting crappy grades, but everybody's getting crappy grades. And, and, and it's a problem because it's mm. like, it'd be one thing if we were, you know, comparing our happiness against other people accurately and it made us feel bad. Yeah. But the problem is we're comparing our own happiness against some standard that's just like false. It's just like made up and incorrect, you know. And so, you know, it's one thing to do social comparison if you're doing it accurately, but it's another to compare it against, you know, these falsehoods. And this study was from, you know, a couple of years ago. This is before Instagram and people are curating, you know, what their positive life looks like, you know. So, yeah. But getting back to this definition of happiness, you know, this is, I think, a spot where I'm both like, you know, like proud of and a little bit sad about social science because we could have, you know, we could do whole courses on what happiness is and get into the philosophy and the religion and stuff. Social scientists usually come up with a definition that's easy to measure. You know, it's kind of like look for your keys under the light sort of thing. And so the way social scientists think about happiness is, is in two ways. They think about being happy in your life and being happy with your life. So being happy in your life is like having, you know, lots of positive emotions and less negative emotions. Not no negative emotions because you want like a mix, but, you know, the ratio of laughter and joy to like anger anger and sadness is pretty good. That's like happy in your life. But then there's being happy with your life, which is kind of the answer to the question, like all things considered, how satisfied are you with your life? It's like your your cognitive or your like the way you think your life is going. And I like those defi- I like that kind of dual definition because there are times when one of those is going good, but the other is not going well, like at all, right? You know, um, <clears throat> my dean who works with me, she and her wife uh, just had a new baby. And so, you know, like with their life, you know, they're like, oh my gosh, I have this big sense of meaning. I have a new child. Like they're very satisfied. But like, if you look at the day to day, like there's dirty diapers and they're not sleeping. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of like day to day stress. Mm-hmm. And and I think, you know, vice versa, right? You know, we're talking about privileged people, right? I think there are a lot of privileged people who, you know, in their life, you know, they have all the hedonism and, you know, great drinks and good food and, you know, no, no strife. But then with their life, they feel kind of empty, right? You know, And so I think what you want to do and what a lot of the scientific strategies are trying to help you do is to maximize both of them, right? Like a good life is you're, you know, have lots of positive emotion and you feel like you're doing something meaningful in your life. Yeah, I saw this program one time that uh, they were talking about a happiness index, I think they called it. Anyway, you know, they've they did. The typical contrast that you would think like the really the Wall Street, you know, jet set and it showed how miserable they are. And then he went to this like cart driver that like pulled people by hand like a horse, you know, <laughs> and um, he was, I think it was in Indonesia 
no teeth, just like, and they caught him in the rain. So he's like pulling people through the mud, getting slopped with mud. They go to his house, his kid, I mean, the the house is leaking. Like it's a, it's a put together shack, you know? And this guy's just grinning from ear to ear. And they're like, why is his happiness index is like 10 out of 10 or nine out of 10. And these people is, and I was like, wow. Okay. So it, it just, it crashed, you know, my perceptions crashed. And I thought, how do I get what that guy's getting? I think a lot of it's expectations, yep. but they focused on their. Yeah. And this and so, this is so critical. I mean, one of my favorite episodes of my podcast, The Happiness Lab, I interviewed this guy, Clay Cockrell, who's a mental health professional for the 0.0001%. Like he's like, you know, a psychologist for super, super rich people, which is maybe like lucratively what I should you know, you get a PhD. Maybe that's what you make more money. But um, but what what's crazy is like he he has clients. Right. And I think in some of our worldview, we just wouldn't expect that he would, right? You know, if you're like a hundred millionaire, like you should be fine. I think that's a lot of our lay perception, right? But not only do they have problems, they have problems that are specific to their money. Like he talked about mm. one client he had who, you know, they, he couldn't find a place to park his yacht and it was causing all these problems with his like wife and all these things. And, you know, on the one <laughs> hand, we look at that and we're like, yeah, woe is me. But then on the other hand, like that's real discontent. It's showing us that like, if we had those circumstances, we might not be different. We might, you know, feel the same way. And then it's the flip side where, you know, in that same episode, I interview people who've had terrible life circumstances. I interviewed this guy, uh, J.R. Martinez, who was a, a Marine whose Humvee blew up and, you know, he was burned over like 80 percent of his body. And, you know, he like had to you know drop his military career. You know, his health is messed up. His looks, he was like kind of a good looking guy to start with. He lost his looks and things. And he'll say, yeah, you know, that event, I was blessed. Like, my life has been blessed, you know. And it's, you know, how do we, it, it, it's striking that it's not circumstances and it violates a lot of our intuitions. But all the studies show that, you know, it's not what we think. Um, and this is important because I think it's not, it's not like we're not trying to go after happiness. You know, many of us are working pretty hard. We're just kind of doing it the wrong way. You know, we're going after the wrong stuff. I'm just trying not to be sad. It's not like I'm pursuing happiness. I'm trying to get the depression, gloom and doom monkey off my back, well, which I think I've done to a great extent. But that was my big thing, you know, yeah. job task. You know, and and also to to piggyback off of what O'Teal said, too, I think that one of the major things that, you know, O'Teal and I believe in common sense. And uh, I think that disappointment is an enormous part of existence right now and how to deal with people disappointing you or you, you disappointing yourself. And, and that, that's a very hard thing to deal with at times because you know, deep down, we're all dented and we're all bruised pieces of fruit here, you know, but there's nutrients in there and you want so bad to, um, you know, help people notice the good in them but then you get disappointed by their actions or their words and maybe they're not willing to do the work on themselves and you just end up that ends up affecting your happiness. Yeah. And that well, drawing that line seems to be incredibly difficult right now. Yeah. Well, Mike, I think you said the right word before you mentioned expectations. Right. And this is something we know from the science, like our mind is just not built to think 
in terms of like some absolute standard. You know, everything that we evaluate, whether it's good or bad, is relative to some expectation. And Mm -hmm. so you got to kind of get your expectations right. And one of my favorite examples of this is becoming very relevant soon because it's a study that took place among uh, Olympic athletes, right? You know, so let's say, you know, you go to the Olympics, you win a silver medal. Like, are you happy, right? (laughs) Turns out if you study, you know, you might think like, oh, my gosh, objectively, you're the second best person in the world. Like, that's amazing. Right. Turns out that silver medalists are actively miserable. So if you do like an analysis, you can take videos of them on the stand and you analyze their facial expression. It's not just that they're less happy than the gold medalists. They're showing emotions like contempt, disgust, deep sadness, anger. Right. Why? Well, you know, what's the salient comparison point and expectation if you just got a silver medal? It's like, I was this close to the gold, right? Like, <laughs> like you're just feeling awful, right? But what's ironic is that they do the same analyses of bronze medal winners. And it turns out not just are bronze medal winners not as miserable as the silver medal winners. They're showing like incredible signs of happiness, sometimes signs of happiness that are stronger than the gold medalists. And you're like, what's up with that? And it turns out, like, what's the salient, what's what's the, like, counterfactual if you just won a bronze medal? Like, you aren't going to get gold. You are, you know, whatever number of points or matches away. But you're like, man, if I had just screwed up a little bit more, I would go home with nothing. <laughs> like, I got a medal. You know, I'm like, on the podium. It's just, yeah, like, the expectation. Awesome. I wouldn't even be on the podium. And I think that's yeah. such a metaphor for everything, right? Like, it's not our objective ranking. It's sort of what we're expecting from ourselves, you know, from the other people around us and so on. And so the good news is that I think what, one of the things the silver medal study shows us is that, you know, we get a natural input about what those expectations are, but we can kind of change them, right? And I think we can change them yes. for ourselves with a little self-compassion. Mm-hmm. We can change them for other people with a little bit of, you know, other people compassion, right? You know, one of the reasons we get so disappointed in people is we hold them to really high standards. And sometimes if we think objectively about like, okay, they're going through a global pandemic too. You know, these people whose political opinions I don't necessarily agree with, they're getting completely different facts than I do. You know, maybe if I got those facts, I would hope that I wouldn't get those facts. But if I got those facts, you know, I might think differently or something like we can like seeing it from a different perspective can allow us to adjust those expectations. We can get more realistic expectations and then we end up not as disappointed, you know, like maybe we're in third place instead of second place, but at least we can get, you know, the joy out of that that we could have gotten. Yeah. Get the joy out of being on the podium. Yeah, yeah. Right. You know, not yeah, missing or even out, being right? in the race. You yeah, know? My, I mean, some people don't even get the chance to be in the race. Yeah. Exactly. The guy in the wheelchair. Right. That's why yeah. I t- my, my second favorite quote besides youth is wasted on the young <laughs> is um, <laughs> expectations are premeditated resentments. And when I heard that, I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. For some yeah. Because I was like, well, how do you adjust your expectations? Like if how do you live life? Not, you know. I'm hoping and expecting to not be sick or the, not this or that, that, you know, yeah. you're, well, there, it's like, this the, is am I not allowed to hope the, things go good? You know? Yeah. I mean, this is a spot where there are like really useful strategies actually. And, and they come from the ancients, right? This is not like mm-hmm. modern scientists thought of this, you know? So one of my favorites of these kinds of strategies comes from the ancient Stoics, you know? So these were mm-hmm. Roman folks like Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius and others, And the Stoics, they get a bad rap because I think people think Stoics like they didn't want to have any emotion. No, they were really into positive emotion and they were just into like, how can we regulate the negative emotion? How can we regulate the, you know, the bad expectations, the disappointment and this stuff? And one of the strategies they had is like, 
you got to do things to actively and intentionally change your expectations. And and a way that they did this was through a process they called negative visualization. So if you read Epictetus, he'll say that you know, every morning before you get up, you should lie in bed and think, today I'm going to lose my job. My wife is going to leave me. I'm going to get sick. I'm going to break my ankle. Like I'm going to get ostracized from society. You just go, not like ruminate painfully, but just like this could happen, this could happen, this could happen. That's right. And the idea is like when you open your eyes, you're like didn't happen. You know, like something bad might happen, but at least my wife didn't leave me or something like that, right? I love that. And so, you know, this is negative visualization, right? Like we just need, you know, this moment. And, and this happens to us all the time, right? You know, I, I have this, I'm very like clumsy and stuff. And so I had this experience where I like, will lose my phone. I'm like, where's my phone? Oh my God. Or my AirPods, right? Like I lost my AirPods. Oh, yeah. They're gone. I'm gonna have to buy new ones, blah, blah, blah. And then I find them in the couch and I'm like, AirPods, like I just have such gratitude <laughs> that that circumstance didn't happen. Thank and so you, couch. The, my couch, right? And so the beauty of negative visualization is like you get the benefit of the bad thing happening in terms of your expectation, but you don't actually have to go through the bad thing. Um, yeah. But there's also appreciating when the bad thing happens, and this is you know something I really mm. hope we can get out of this pandemic, like. You know, like in 2018, when I was first teaching my happiness class, I didn't walk into like a coffee shop without a mask with joy, right? Like I didn't hang out, you know, I didn't go to a concert and think like this is, I mean, concerts are fun, but I didn't think like this is the best ever. This is a type of activity that could get taken away from me at any time, right? I didn't go to into an air conditioned movie in the summer and think like, oh my gosh, this is so fragile. I might lose this. Right, and now right. I'm kind of like, how could I have had those experiences and not, you know, appreciate, you know, like the next time I get to go to a concert, you know, no mask, no fear, just like every, you know, it will feel amazing. I'll have just like an extra level of gratitude for it. And I think we can all come out of this pandemic appreciating the things that like were fragile and we just like didn't realize how fragile they were. You know, so the hope is it gives us a little more gratitude, a little more. You know, we've changed our expectations in a way that's going to make as we get out of this more enjoyable. Yeah. yeah. One Absolutely. of the people I follow uh, that I read a lot is this uh, theologian, Abraham Joshua Heschel. Mm-hmm. And uh, he talks about how the problem with our society is that we've lost our sense of wonder. It's like you were saying, like, when you're at the concert, you're like, oh, man, this is great. I can be here. I could be without a mask. I could be, like, not worried about getting sick. And and that, if you follow that thread, I mean, you can, like, recover your sense of wonder about a lot of things. Like, we should yeah. be, we should have an incredible sense of wonder about this happening right now. Like, it's yeah. how many miracles? Like, it's crazy. We're in three different places Zooming and... And we're so talking just, about happiness, which is like, that's yeah. even like such a wonder. You know what like I mean? We like have we're science actually... that can figure this out, right? Our minds get yeah. it wrong, but we have tools to get it. Yeah. So I think, you know, they're just, we have to kind of turn that back on. And and sometimes you get it by losing it for a little bit and coming back to it, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know if you've ever been like, you know, I don't know, like sick and you can't get up and then you get out in the world and you're like, oh my gosh, yeah. like the world, <laughs> you know, yeah. like sunshine, right? I was talking um, about it just a couple of days ago. Like I remind myself when I'm sick, like when you feel normal, just take it for granted normal. Go, oh yeah, I don't feel sick right now. Thank you so much. You know, like. Yeah. yeah. And even when you're going through a bad time, you know, it's it's helpful to recognize like, you know, this sucks now, but it could like 
suck way worse. You know, there's this, um, I know I, I mentioned the Stoics, but they're modern day philosophers who talk about, you know, like Stoic kind of strategies and things. And there's this one guy, Bill Irvine, who has this book called The Stoic Challenge. And so, you know, he talks about like the Stoics were excited when bad things happen because they're like, okay, this is my chance to practice all right. these Stoic strategies. Like, you know? like, like they'd be so happy it. like about a pandemic because yeah. they're like, yeah, this is going to suck, right? Like I can really try to see if I can get through this, you know, with my emotions intact. And, you know, he talks about like when you go through bad things, that's like you're going up a level in the video game, right? Like you're yeah. really giving your strategies. And I read this book, The Stoic Challenge, um, a bit before the pandemic when I'd, I'd fallen on the ice and, and broken my kneecap. And Ooh. so I couldn't walk. I was on crutches. I was like, whoa, is me. This sucks and whatever. And he goes through these things of like, you know, if you're going through a bad thing, it you know could be a broken knee, but like you could also get X or Y or Z, which is like much worse. And he talks about cases of people who are um, you know, who fall and become, you know, like a form of paraplegic where you're like shut in, right? Where you have no motor control over anything but your like eye blink or something like that, yeah. right? So you can't yeah. talk, you're fully cognitively functional, but you, and I was like, oh man, like I can't walk to the store, but at least like I could talk to my husband. Like at least I could like, you know, <laughs> write, you know, emails and things. Yeah. And so it's just one yeah. of these things where, you know, it, it is your frame of mind. You can experience incredible gratitude over a broken leg with the right frame of mind. And right. it takes work, but it is something we can control. You know, you know, what's one thing that, uh, I really appreciate that and about taking control. And it's one thing that I think personally that I've been working on is like pushing back reaction, a beat or a, or two beats and like acknowledging the emotion that I'm feeling as it's coming in and figuring out like, okay, I'm feeling this before you're feeling it. Because there's this kind of like, you know, there, there's like a timeline of, of events and there's a timeline of circumstances. And if someone cuts you off, your initial thing is to scream and beep and swear and whatever. And then you're like, well, we don't know what happened to that. Like, I have no idea what that guy's going through or whatever, or maybe he's rate, maybe his mm -hmm. wife's in labor and he's trying to get there. Like, yeah. you know, and, and there's those things that happen to us throughout the entire day where maybe upbringing was kind of like, yeah, everyone's out to get you. And you kind of have this, you know, preconceived chatter. That's like, don't trust anyone. You're always the victim, blah, blah, blah. But then you kind of have to re. So what I'm realizing is that we're in this marathon of life that's filled with self-criticism and self-anxiety. The faster I can acknowledge how I'm feeling before reacting to how I'm feeling is a huge, I feel that's like a very important step. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back after this. Hey there, Osiris listeners. I wanted to tell you about our friends over at SmartWool. For more than 25 years, SmartWool has been making merino wool socks and apparel designed to keep you comfortable. Because they want to help you play, laugh, and explore in the outdoors with every thread they knit and every step you take. Because they believe that comfort sharpens focus and lets you perform beyond your limits. They're here to help you feel good. Now, it's up to you how far you will go. Take 15% off of your first order at smartwool.com. Smartwool. Go far, feel good. What's up, everyone? I'm Mike. And I'm Oteal. And these are our Sunset Lake CBD gummies that are almost gone. Sunset Lake CBD is a farmer-owned business that ships CBD products 
directly from their farm to your door. For years, Sunset Lake was a Vermont dairy farm producing milk for Ben and Jerry's ice cream. In 2018, they diversified and started growing hemp for CBD. And with a product for everyone, they offer pre-rolls, hemp cigars, and hemp flowers, as well as tinctures, gummies, and CBD-crafted coffee to help with stress, aches, and pains. Sunset Lake CBD saves you money by shipping high-quality CBD products directly from their farm to your door. Want to know what I've been using a lot of, Oteal? This salve with the arnica on my my old bones. You get back from a show and you got tore ankle, rub a little bit of this on there. You're ready to dance the next day. And you know, Sunset Lake uh, comes a time listeners can visit sunsetlakecbd.com and use promo code time for 20% off of their purchase. That's sunsetlakecbd.com promo code time and tell them we sent you. Thanks for listening. Again, this is another time when, you know, modern science is bearing this out, but the ancients, you know, got this right. One of my favorite Buddhist parables is the parable of the second arrow. I don't know if you all know this. So Buddha's talking to his disciples and he's like, hey, if you're walking down the street and somebody shoots you with an arrow, you know, is that bad? Do you feel bad? And all his disciples are like, yeah, that would suck to get shot with an arrow like out of nowhere, (laughs) right? And so Buddha's like, okay, if you're walking down the street, you get hit with that first arrow and then you get shot with a second arrow. Like, is that worse? And people are like, yeah, that would, you know, suck twice as much if it was two arrows. And so Buddha says, you know, the first arrow is, you know, just the stuff in life, right? The suffering of life that we can't control. Somebody cuts you off, you get sick, there's a pandemic. Like, we can't control that. But the second arrow is usually our reaction to it. Like somebody cuts you off and you get pissed off and now you're mad and then you say something mean to your wife and then she's mad or, that, or you like slam your car into them. Or like it's a global pandemic and I, you know, freak out and I'm mad and I get depressed and I, you know, piss my kids off for 18 months, right? Like that's our reaction to it. And usually the second arrow is worse, right? And mm. it's completely under our control, right? Like with the right strategies, we don't have to kind of stab ourselves with the second arrow. And that parable for me has been like, Huge. Actually, there's like, you know, the little emoji of arrows. And sometimes I'll be like, you know, I don't know, like my assistant does something that I, you know, I'm like mad about. And then, you know, I'm like complaining about it and it's ruining my whole day. And my, you know, my my podcast producer, because he's nice like this, will just send me like a picture of two emojis of arrows. And I'm like, okay, right. Yes, I, I don't need to, you know. It's a good reminder. Real- it's a good reminder. But when you realize like you're not, it's not out of control, right? Like you have a control on your reaction to, you always have a control of your reaction to it, even in the worst of circumstances. That's powerful, right? It it Mm. really can allow you to feel like you have some agency, even in the worst of times. Yeah. It's that quote. No, go ahead, Oteil. Well, I was just having this thought about, you know, when you were talking about the, the really rich people that needed a therapist, you know, and I thought about something that I heard Marianne Williamson say recently, which I agree with, you know, and she was like, the, you know, the system that we live in is sociopathic. Like just to, like, take whichever one, the economic one or the political one, or whatever, you know, so our whole, the whole paradigm we live in is this deeply negative, like insane <laughs> basically paradigm you know so no wonder rich people you know like billionaires should need some therapy 
really, if you're like not doing enough on the other end. And so, but then on the lower end of it, you know, for all of us regular mortals, it seems like a lot to like overcome. There's so much programming and peer pressure that comes with, you know, this party and that party and, uh, you know, nationalism, your religion, your uh, all kinds of categories that you have to be like, wow, like all this stuff is nuts. Like, I don't know how much of it is healthy. So how, how, what strategies do we use to like overcome this? A lot of propaganda and peer pressure and all that stuff. It's, it's big, you know? Yeah, it's big. And I think, it you know, it, those structures are not created to promote happiness, right? No. I mean, like, <laughs> like capitalism, right? Like, yeah. you know, work, 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 you know, violate your social connections to individually get ahead of things. Like, it, it like yeah. doesn't allow you to do half the things we need for happiness, which is to make social connections, to do good for others, like, you know, money, accolades, circumstances. That's not going to help at all. Um, it prevents us from having free time. Uh, one of the coolest yeah. findings is there's a lot of work now on what's called time affluence, which is feeling wealthy in time. It turns out that being time famished or not having a lot of time is actually worse off for you than being uh, like money famished or being poor. Um, there's a lot of evidence that if you self-report being time famished a lot, that's a bigger hit on your well-being than if you're unemployed, if you self-report being unemployed. So like huh, losing yeah. time is worse than losing money. But yeah, And the man, super think- rich, are they never have, who has time? Right. You're you're always chasing that more. Oh, I got one billion. Now I need to get the five to 80. Well, and also probably everyone that you talk to you in the back of your head, you're like, what do they want from me? Totally. You know what I mean? Like when you're poor, you're like, no, they don't want anything. They just want me to work for free. But like if you're a billionaire, you're like, great. What are they asking me for? Yeah. I you mean, in, in this strange role, you know, I like consult with wealth management professionals. I kind of do my own version of this and they, you know, talk a lot about like, the stress that comes from having money, right? Even if you're going to like donate it to your family, it's like, well, am I going to check that they're doing it? You know, something right with it. Like, you know, do I like, what if they have a, you know, addiction issues? Like, you yep. know, what's my role in this? You know, even if you have a lot of money, like you're like, I could donate to cancer or I could donate to like, you know, a new university building or a library or a concert hall. Like, what should I do? Like, there's a lot of pressure that, you know, we mortals with not a ton of money don't experience in the same way. And so I think I would have an easy time with that. I was like, let's deal with homeless and people eating. (laughs) I mean, let's just get to the basics. Like, I don't know about Mm -hmm. cancer or MS, but I know these people are starving. These people are uh, don't have a it's too cold for them. Now I have a roof over their head. But, you know, that's just that's why well, I'm not that's us from here now. That's yeah. us from here now. Right. And, yeah. and well, I think and it's also, also you're picking up on, a you know, something the science shows, which is one of the reasons money doesn't really make us happy is we spend it wrong. The first thing we do wrong is we spend it on ourselves. You get much more of a boost in happiness if you're using your money to help other people. Um, yeah. You know, one, one, you know, my favorite studies on this was by um, Liz Dunn, uh, who's a professor at the University of British Columbia. And she does a study where she walks up to people on the street and hands them 20 bucks. And, you know, it's a great study to be a subject. In, right? And then um, and then but the key is she tells you how to spend it. She either says, you know, you got to do something with this 20 bucks to spend it on yourself, treat yourself, do something nice for yourself. Or she says you have to spend this 20 bucks on someone else, like do something nice for somebody else. You can't spend it on yourself. And she calls people later in the day and later in the week to test their to assess their happiness. And what she finds is that 
people who spend the money on others are happier. And she, yeah. you know, and she runs and you might say, well, that's just 20 bucks, you know, who cares? But, you know, she can't, I think she'd love to have grant funding where she could, you know, give subjects a million dollars like on the street. Um, she's not able to do that, but she, she re-ran the study in rural Uganda where, you know, $20 Canadian where she's running the study, yeah. like, you know, can buy someone's HIV medication for two months or something, right? It goes much yeah. further. And what she finds is that the same thing holds even when you're dealing with bigger sums of money when you're using that money on other people it it like makes you happier than if you're spending on yourself um which is makes sense but you know it violates my natural intuition right like or or like when push comes to shove and i'm having a crappy day i'm not thinking you know i should buy a manicure for a coworker, or i should like do something nice for somebody (laughs) i haven't talked to i'm like i want to buy myself a manicure i want to do you know get a nice dinner for myself right but it turns out those intuitions are wrong. We'd be better off doing for other people. I think we all have that, uh, like if I hit Powerball fantasy when we're mm-hmm. in traffic or when we can't sleep. And, you know, it is interesting that while you're talking about that, I'm thinking in the back of my mind, like, where does my mind always go? And it's always like, I'm going to pay off my siblings debt. Mm-hmm. I'm going to pay off my wife's student loans. I'm going to do, you know, and then give half to this and whatever. But again, that's like being the philanthropist knowing like I don't have that money right now. I think instantly I'd go paranoid and I'm like, everyone's going to be out to get me. I have to go buy a mountain, <laughs> yeah. live at the top of it and build yeah. a fence around it. And, you know, like automatically that's where I would probably <laughs> I'd go. And I, I think it's burn like half of it, bury half of it. No, I, mean, I think it's like we forget that our financial status connects us to other people. Right. You know, one of the things yeah. I hear when I talk to rich people, especially people who recently made money or won the lottery is even worse. It's like yeah, you just kind of can't connect anymore. You know, I've done some, you know, consulting for like, you know, professional sports teams, which is something that they go through. Right. Which is like this is their dream. Right. They've been wanting to do this forever. And then it's like, you know, they can't go out to dinner with their cousins or, they'll you know, they'll say something like they go out to dinner and they order a bottle of wine and their family will be like, I've never been at a dinner where somebody ordered a whole bottle of wine before. Like, what you know, like now yeah. I'm feeling insecure. I'm getting this imposter syndrome. Right? You can't be around other people without negatively affecting them. And that sucks. It means you feel less connected to the people in some cases that you used to really care about. And then the only people that do uh, relate to where you are is other people that are that successful. And they could be super narcissistic or just mm-hmm. super driven, super like they're not normal. Yeah. Right, right. So you can't have a normal relationship. You yeah. know, and, and you your standards change, of, right? You know, Clay, well, Clay Cockrell in his episode, the, the wealth psychologist, he talks about how even those people who aren't happy, one of the reasons they're not happy is they're striving to get to the next step. Like, oh, I have a couple hundred million, but I'm not a billionaire yet. Oh, I or I can get so I can get this kind of painting, but I can't get this kind of painting. And you'd think like, well, that seems crazy. But, you know, they're just playing out the hypothesis that we have. You know, we have the Powerball fantasy, as you were saying, Mike, like, like, oh, if I could only get this money. And they think, well, I got this money. I'm not happy. And What they do then is they don't reject the hypothesis. Well, maybe I was just wrong. Maybe it wasn't money. They think, well, I just don't have enough of it yet. You know, like I need to get more. (laughs) Right. And it's like at no point. One of my other favorite, you know, statistics that I talk about in the classes, you know, they do these 
surveys to ask people, like, how much money would you need to be happy? Like, how much money could I give you that if I give you a dollar more, a hundred dollars more, you would be not like, it's just the max happy that you'd get from money. And so they ask people who are currently earning $30,000 in the US, like, what's the the salary I could give you to make you the max happy? And people will say, if I was just earning $50,000 a year, I wouldn't need a penny more. That would be like the max happiness. <laughs> but then you go to people who are earning $100,000 and you say, okay, how much do you need? You know, in theory, they should be like, I'm good. Like, <laughs> like I'm, I'm double twice, good, I'm double yeah, good totally. right? <laughs> but they don't say that. They say, I need $250,000 a year to feel to feel good. And two things with that. One is like, you know, you don't get there. Like you think you're going to get there, but you don't get there. And as you get more, you think you need more. So it's not like you get closer to the goal as you get more money or more accolades or more whatever. You kind of get further away. So it's this, yeah, it's this really sad yeah. state of affairs. And that's what capitalism is getting us, you know, like that's the beliefs that are entrenched in all of our minds. Well, I, that's what brought me to a deeper spiritual uh, or a spiritual practice at all was when I was doing the best uh, financially and I was rich in time uh, for sure because I had plenty of time. I was at my most miserable. And so it just was like, wow, what do I yeah. do with this? You know, but the spiritual part was the missing piece. And even my dad, who's... Uh, well, actually, as of today, he's not atheistic anymore. That's a whole nother story. But he was for most of his life. Um, I remember him telling me, you know, this gets back to what you were talking about, that these fundamentals, the ancients had a very good hold on them. You know, he grew up Catholic in New York. It was a very bad experience. But he, I remember him saying to me, you know, it always used to blow my mind that the Christians around me that were, and we were all poor. We were all very, very poor. And he was like, they were so poor. They had nothing, but they were always helping out other people that had less. And like, he just couldn't, he found it like he couldn't figure out why, but he knew there was some, there was something in there that was really good. You know, I think he realizes it now, but uh, I, I thought, wow. And I didn't really have my head wrapped around it back then but that's how I that's how I do it I remember hearing this preacher on the radio I was going by radio stations and uh, I heard him say comparison destroys contentment and I was like oh wow and so I stopped and listened to him for a while and eventually I veered off because it went into other places that I wasn't into at that point and probably still am not but that stuck with me you know mm. it gets back to that premeditated resentments yeah. Thing, you know? you know, yeah. Yeah. You got to get the right comparisons, right? And recognize you can control it either with your imagination, right? You can imagine what it would be like to be in a worse circumstance. Also with your media, you know, I mean, so mm -hmm. many of us spend yeah. our time looking at the, you know, I was just reading an article about Jeff Bezos, like going to space and whatever. And it's like, okay, I could read that or I could read like, you know, what's happening, you know, in China with the floods, right? Where it's like, yeah. you know, I could be like, oh, I'm never going to be rich enough to go to space. Or I could be like, oh my gosh, thank God my house is not filled with like, you know, two yeah. feet of water right now. And so, and, yeah. And, and even with that, that Bezos thing, it's like, you know, there was an 82 year old woman on that spaceship who, after years and years of training to be an astronaut, finally made it to space. So like, that's the, to me, the great part of that story is her doing it. And then afterwards, Bezos donates $200 million to wh wherever, you know, to mm -hmm. Van Jones, I believe in someone else. And then it's like, it's just such an odd thing. Like you're mad at him. Like he's leaving the planet. He's destroying, yeah. but then he's like, Oh, and here's $200 million. Like he's given someone a dollar on the street, you know, yeah, in British yeah. Columbia. So it's just your mind sometimes 
goes like, and you know, one of the things that I wanted to, to ask you about, and it's something that, you know, I'm in my forties and I am more aware of aging now than ever. And I've been thinking a lot about, I don't mean physically aging gracefully. I mean, um, ego aging gracefully. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's this thing that I've been noticing where a lot of folks I see, you know, going into the autumn of their life, they're like white knuckle, like holding mm-hmm. on to this reality that if they let go of it, everything was a, was a, a ruse and, and it was all a lie and they might as well just, you know, hop off a bridge or something. And, and, and it's, and it's this weird, ego thing that seems like as you get older, um, you get more like, because I said so, or this is the way it's supposed to be, or these stupid kids. I feel like that's a major component in the division and in the unhappiness and in the splitting of families and all types of stuff that we're seeing Mm -hmm. all over the place. And I wanted to ask you about like your opinion on that. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, this is something that like, you know, we have to deal with, again, it sort of gets back to these sort of Buddhist concepts or like, you know, if you look at, you know, Buddhism, like, you know, the first noble truth is like suffering, suffering yes. happens. And one of the biggest things is suffering is like, we're all going to get old and we're all going to die. Like sucks, but like, that's just what's going to happen. Right. And, you know, if you, even if, you know, you're not like that old and you don't get the wrinkles and it doesn't happen today, it's going to happen. You know, the alternative is like not as good, right? <laughs> like you're either going to yeah. get old or yeah. you're not going to be here. Right. Um, And that sucks, right? You know, it's just a fact of life that's kind of bad. But I think when we face that, right, like with the what the happiness science would suggest is like avoiding that, running away from it, white knuckling in the other direction, you know, getting mad at people who still have the youth and don't aren't in the position you're in. Like, that's not going to help. Right. Like what we need to do is to sort of navigate those negative emotions. And I think this is a kind of funny thing that comes out of the happiness science is we think, you know, you think happiness science is like, you got to just be in positive emotion all the time. No, really what the science shows is like, you got to deal with those negative emotions. You got to give yourself a place to process them. You just have to like not let them take over, you know? So there's going to be some uncertainty about the fact that we're getting old. There's going to be some sadness. There's going to be some frustration with the physical limitations that come from that, right? And those are emotions you have to figure out, like, how to process. We think that the right way to process emotions is to just, like, suppress them or pretend they're not happening. But there are studies that show the negative consequences of that. You know, there's one study where you bring people into the lab, you have them watch a sad movie, and you say, whatever you do, don't try to experience the sadness. Like, get, make it so that no one can tell that you're feeling sad or feeling any emotions about it. And what you find is that people do worse on a memory test. You know, so you have cognitive changes from suppressing your emotions. It takes like cognitive work to do it. And you have cardiac changes. So you can actually measure cardiac stress even in that laboratory task of like your heart is your body and your fight or flight systems working harder, not to experience the emotions, but to suppress them. Right? Like that's bad. And so the answer is we have to find safe ways of letting ourselves experience emotion. And so there's some good meditation practices that you can use to do this. Um, One is a, a practice with an acronym called RAIN, which is that you recognize, accept, investigate, and nurture. So, you know, if you're 
like you know, we were talking about cutting off in traffic, you get cut off in traffic and you have this moment where you're like, wait a minute, that, you know, feeling in my chest where my chest is tight and my jaws clenching, like that's anger, like that's frustration. Or, you know, I don't know, like this, this morning I like, you know, cause I'm also in my forties and getting old. I like had to cancel yoga with my friend. Cause I was like, I don't know. I did something to my neck last night. <laughs> like, like I yeah, used totally. to hurt myself doing things and now I hurt myself yeah. sleeping. Right. Yeah, and that, yeah. you know, admitting that was like, you know, there's some fear there. There's some frustration. There's like, you know, so you recognize those emotions. This is then the next step is allow, which is the sort of self-compassion step where you say, I'm just going to allow non-judgmentally to these things to be there. And then you got to give your brain something to do while those emotions are taking their course. And that's the I step, which is investigate where you're like, all right, what does this feel like? What happens to me? Like, oh, when I'm feeling frustrated about being old, I want to eat something or I want to have a drink or I want to, you know, I want to avoid it. I want to check my email. Right. I'm I'm watching my, my jaws getting clenched. Like I can actually feel like what does it feel like in my body? And the reason you do that I step is that emotions are kind of like a wave. You know, they're going to go up. But then they'll kind of come down. And if you could just sort of urge surf or sort of surf the emotion, as people call it, you'll get through it. And then at the end, there's the step of the end, which is the nurture, which is like it sucks to go through negative emotions. What can you do to really nurture yourself? Again, not like run away from them or like use a substance or something like that. But like call a friend, you know, take a break, cancel a meeting, like, you know, do something fun. Right. How can you kind of make up for the fact that you just went through those emotions and you know, research shows that practices like RAIN can, if you engage with them and they can reduce burnout, you know, even among first responders or, you know, these yeah. are individuals, especially right now during COVID, these are people who like have to face mm-hmm. negative emotions and scary things on a daily basis. And they so, also deliver a lot of bad news to people. Exactly. That's you know, heavy. You yeah. know, mm-hmm. and so in fact, one of the studies on, on practices like RAIN and allowing emotions was in, um, uh, people who work with uh, terminal patients, you know, so you're giving really bad cancer diagnoses or, you know, being there as people are in end of life decisions and so on. And, you know, it can be powerful. It can be a nice it can be a technique where, again, you know, we don't want a life where we have no negative emotions. Like part of being a human and experiencing a rich human life is to go through those. But yeah. you need some strategies because they don't feel good at the time. It's hard accepting <laughs> the stages, too, man. I, uh guy that I followed that counseled men a lot, uh, saying the different ways that they would, you know, get their life into a ditch is not accepting the different stages of life, mm-hmm. you know, and that's something that really stuck on I me. Mean, I heard it probably 20 years ago and it really has made me, I, I didn't realize I was kind of doing the rain thing mm-hmm. by doing that, but he's like, you know, every living thing has stages, birth and you go through this and it ends up at death and because we're a youth worshiping culture mm-hmm. you know we don't accept oh you know these things are going to go this is going to happen and I, so I started then like uh, I guess I was maybe 35 40 then like going okay when this starts to happen like get ready for it now and now mm. that it's happening I had my first kid at 50 and so mm. I could see the comparison, which which would have been brutal before, but now I'm like, okay, I'm kind of like the elder guy yeah. now, you know, and I'm trying to enjoy it a little, you know. Yeah. Well, and and it's like watching myself get annoyed with, you know, you do comedy, anything in entertainment. It's like you kind of have to utilize social media to promote yourself, even no matter how disgusting yeah. you feel doing it. But then you see people doing like 
you know, I don't understand TikTok. I don't think I have enough outfits to do TikTok. So it's like, <laughs> I don't want to do it, but I see it and I get mad at it. And I'm like, what am I getting yeah. mad at? Am I getting mad at the app? At the, am I getting mad at the ones and zeros? Or am I getting mad at the person who knows how to do it or can dance better than me? Like, what is it that, and then I see myself, that's the, the person I see going like, ah, kids in this music, this isn't rock and roll. Led Zeppelin was rock and roll. And it's like, it's just the same thing. So back to what I was saying earlier is like, I like to kind of try to have some type of like electric fence or something that buzzes that's going like, all right, I'm feeling like an old piece of shit. You know, yeah. like, let's start mm-hmm. trying to. You're becoming the, the get off my lawn guy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, not that bad. My, you can come on my lawn anytime you want, but yeah, no, definitely. There's that thing of like, ah, these kids, I don't get it. But then you have to stop yourself and go like, I'm not supposed to get it. Like right. it would be weird if I got it. And that's the thing that I'm kind of trying to like, make sure with aging that like, it's very interesting to see this like baby boomer generation of like draft card burning, mm-hmm. you know, hippies that were down with establishment are now like, wait, what's going to happen to my taxes? Like, no, no, yeah. you know what I mean? It's all changes. So it's like, I know change is inevitable, but it's like acknowledging your ego. I think as you age is like, a, I, I don't know, I have to make it sure that it's a thing for me. Cause yeah. it's like, you can learn from the bad just as much as you can from the good, you know? So if and you I see a lot kind of, of bad. Getting, getting something good out of the common humanity of it, you know, these are, you know, the, the parts of kind of self-compassion, right? So mindfulness, you know, self-kindness, which includes like kind of non-judgment, um, but then also recognizing your common humanity, right? Like you could try to fight against that, but, you know, there is actually something that's nice that connect. You know, when you see the youth of today with, you know, the crazy things they're doing on TikTok, you're like, oh, that was just like I was doing, you know, back in the day when I had whatever, you know. And so, you know, I was yeah. making some great, not great choices when I look back at those pictures, too. And so, yeah, yeah so recognizing that commonness can actually yeah. boost your social connection. It can make you feel connected to this next generation. And that alone is a thing we know can boost happiness. That's awesome. And we don't want to keep you too long. I know you are a, you're a very busy person, but I, if it's okay, do you have time for like a few, there's a couple more yeah, yeah. questions. Mm-hmm. All right, cool. I have to ask, and I'm interested in this and you go into the first day of your semester and then you go to the last day of your semester. Are you seeing a transformation in your students as it relates to happiness or are they looking at, at it from a scientific, you know, you know, I took math because I had to take math. I don't think anyone's taking <laughs> happiness because they have to take happiness. You know, mm-hmm, do you find mm-hmm. seekers coming to your class? Do you find like, you know, what's it like? Yeah, it's a very interesting experience as a teacher from your perspective, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, I think the fact that it went so viral, you know, again, the first time we took it, a quarter of the entire Yale student body enrolled in the class. Right. Wow. Which is incredible. I mean, I had to like we had to teach it in a concert hall, you know, so I felt like, you know, a musician up there, a comedian, you know. Um, People are holding up lighters at the end of your seminars. Yeah, exactly. Like clap and it like fills the room and stuff. More happiness. Yeah. Uh, but but I think, you know, the reason it went viral is like these students are voting with their feet. They're all seekers. Right. You know, if you live in a culture where 40 percent of your friends are depressed and 60 percent of them are anxious, it's like you don't like that. Like you want to change yeah. it. Right. And I think especially these Yale students feel like, you know, the, to become a Yale student, you have to buy into this idea of like, oh, if I just get good grades and, you know, get enough extracurriculars and get into the perfect school, everything's going to be great. And all my students have had the experience of that. And they're like, wait, not there yet. Right. Like, like Mm. what else, you know, like what else do I double down on? Right. If I just did all those things. And so 
I think they really were seeking something. And, you know, this is the sad thing about the class is like, you know, we were so blindsided. I thought it was going to be like 30 kids in the class, right? So I could survey them, you know, before and after, like, are you happier or whatever? You know, with a quarter of the entire student body, we didn't like get it together to do like pre-post surveys. And, you know, with my scientist hat, I'm kind of sad about that. Um, anecdotally, we know that students, you know, so many students wrote to me and told me how much the class changed their life or, you know, changed, changed how they thought about their choices after Yale, um, which has been amazing. Um, but we've now put the class online for free. So it's available on Coursera.org called the science of well-being. And we have had 3 million people sign up. So it's not just Yale kids that need this. It's like a lot of people. But there we actually got our act together and said, okay, we should, you know, try to study this scientifically. And so if you opt in, you kind of take a survey at the start of the class that kind of measures your well-being, like your positive emotion and your sense of meaning and stuff. And you do it after. And what we're finding empirically, actually, we just wrote up these findings is like, on average, on a, if you assume the happiness scale is about 10 points, like that happiness index is like 10 points, people go up about a whole point, um, which wow. is, I think, pretty, you know, if you're yeah. at a six and you go up to a seven, like that's pretty good, you know. Um, yeah. But the key that we're finding is you got to do the stuff, right? You know, it's one thing to know about, oh, I reframe or I do this negative visualization or I meditate every day or whatever. It's another thing to actually do that every day. And so... The key isn't just knowing what you're supposed to do. It's putting it into practice. Well, we get that kind of uh, uh, soda machine mind frame with society where you like do put your coin in, you get your reward. And it's like what I found, because I I didn't know, like, how do you love yourself? What does self-care mean, you know? And then it just I realized like over a long period of time, the yoga, the eating better, the exercise, or even like yesterday, I was kind of overwhelmed. And I was just like, I'm going back to bed. And and I'm not going to feel guilty about it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like, uh, this is for me. This is my little gift wrapped thing for myself, you know, but it's over a long period of time. And that's our society. And our probably just our human nature really is not set up that way. And it's a it's a much longer process, you know. Yeah, but and I just, add- you know, these things go slow, right? And it's it's like a long game. It's a marathon, it's like not a sprint, this, right? You know, yeah, <laughs> the, the upward. But I want to ask you about the podcast. Yeah, that's uh, what. Can you tell yeah, me by totally. the name and also what was one of your favorite like surprise things that you liked at that came out of the podcast? Yeah, so you know when the class went so viral and the online version of the class went so viral, we thought you know we need other ways to get people this content. And so we started this podcast called the Happiness Lab, which you can download wherever you get your podcasts. Um, and it's fun because you know a lot of these happiness stories, even the scientific work, they're narrative stories, right? It's about what's happening to me and, you know, what are, what's going on with my emotions and my comparisons and my expectations. And so it's been really fun to explain some of these concepts in like a podcast form because it's just such an easy way for people to get it. And, you know, you just meet these so such interesting people. Like I mentioned, the wealth psychologist, another one of my favorite episodes is uh, I meet the guy who made the first ATM machine, who's now this 80-year-old Texan guy. And he's wow. interesting because, uh, you know, he decided to make an ATM machine, but his wife, who's also, you know, an 80-year-old Texan woman, like, she's never used one. She's never used one because she thinks the the act of talking with the teller is something that makes yeah. her a little happy. She doesn't want to yeah. get rid of the social connection and turn to technology. And so, you know, so the episode's kind of like, 
who's right, you know, like who, you know. Uh, so, that's awesome. You know, yeah. So it's it's watching people's real strategies of navigating, trying to figure out what makes them happy and trying to bring in the evidence. So um, so we're headed off a cliff because everybody's, <laughs> you know, like yeah. automating everything, siloing off and only relating to your social media. It's like, oh, boy. Yeah. And even, I mean, you good. all musicians, right? Like, I feel like in music, like I remember the days where you'd walk to somebody's house and see their, you know, I'll say CD collection, although I could go back for further yeah, like record tapes. collection, yeah. right? Tapes, yeah. right? But A-track. like they tracks, right? A-track. But you go there and you see, you're like, oh my gosh, you listen to this, who's this? And they tell you about stuff. Now it's a blind algorithm that tells me, yeah. you know, it lives in my phone. No one sees what's in my Spotify list. Like I'm much yeah. more likely yeah. to get a recommendation, you know, not through someone else. But you know, and so like it's the question is like what are we losing for our happiness our connection through these kinds of technologies which give us a lot right like you and i we will not be having this conversation right now no one listening to this podcast would be listening to it without technology but you know can we develop a better healthier relationship with it you know so we get the good parts uh but don't lose out on the bad parts right no absolutely yeah because even though this is impersonal we are connecting and with the fans it's almost like can we use the things that could disconnect us to connect us more, but then like, us. let's get back together again in person in some place. <laughs> you know, the moment that uh, I heard about you and, and what you were doing, uh, Lori, I, I immediately told Oteil, like, we have to have her on because as someone who believes that the education system is completely busted, um, <laughs> you are, I hope that 200 years from now, they're talking about Lori Santos and how she changed education and made, you know, happiness and mental health uh, an extremely important part of the uh, curriculum. So thank you so much for what you're doing. And uh, you're a hero, like you really are. And and it's so important to the, the, the hardest thing to do when you're alone in college is to realize that you're not alone. You know, uh, you automatically feel like you're going through everything by yourself. So to be able to sit in a concert hall or a, or a class and look at your, you know, peers and go like, wow, they're crying right now too, or, or they're laughing right now too. Like it, it, you're, you're helping people realize that they don't have to go through this alone. And I think that's step number one when it comes to mental health. Yeah. Well, d- ditto, ditto to what you're doing with the podcast too. So, you know, we're all, all taking our own little steps as we can. We really appreciate your time. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me on. Osiris. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 